Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, well, we have been talking a lot the last two weeks about this concept of city in the book of Hebrews. Remember in chapter 11, Abraham and the patriarchs, they were looking forward to a city. For them, it was Zion, the promised land, Jerusalem, the city where God would dwell in his temple. But last week we saw in chapter 12 that we have already come to this city. Remember this? Patty Lynn reminded, it, reminded us in Hebrews chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. This is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So how, how did they and we, how did they come to Mount Zion, the city of God? Well, I wanna suggest to you that the city of God came to them and came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, right? He dwelled among us. He took our sin and he bore our sorrow on the cross. And then he did something really amazing. Jesus left his spirit in us to dwell as his city on this earth. Remember uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said just before he died, really very close to when he died, he said, you all, we missed that, y'all, you all are the light of the world. You're like this city on, a, on the side of a hill. It cannot be hidden. It's, it's obvious. It's obvious to everyone. Together, we are the city of God now. We're his people. We're, we're the ambassadors of this great city that is to come. And as his city, God gives light to the whole world through us. Our citizenship is in heaven. So our city here, it's gonna reflect God's values in sharp contrast to the world around us until he comes back to take us home. So I think Hebrews 13 summarizes these kingdom values for our city of light. So I want you to open up your Bible. I want you to be, we're gonna read this whole text today. So I want you to have it open, open it to chapter 13. And then we're gonna pray together and jump into the text. Pray with me. Oh God, we just praise your name. We're asking you, Father, to teach us this morning how to be your city, how to shine your light out into our world. God, would you just completely move me out of the way? Would you show us something new in Hebrews 13 this morning? Would you give us the courage, Father, through your Holy Spirit to live it out in Jesus' name and for his glory? Amen. All right, we're gonna just jump right in. We're gonna start in verse one of chapter 13. The text says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And I want us to stop right there because I think that these two verses together make up the overarching kingdom value in our city of light. So I wanna show you something really cool uh, from the Greek text. Remember, Jesus said that the world will know, right, that we're his disciples <clears throat> by our what? By our love. 
for one another, but it's a totally different kind of love than we might, than we might think, right? So in the Greek, when you see the word translated brotherly love, it's actually this word in Greek, and, it's, and we know it as Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. And it literally means the love of brothers or sisters, physical family members, the love of brothers or sisters. But I think what gets lost in the translation is this word that we translate hospitality. Look at it. It looks a lot like Philadelphia, right? It's philoxenia. And it, it means the same, the same concept of love, but it's love to strangers. We're supposed to show hospitality as love to strangers. Well, I want to show you a picture. This is this gets me emotional every time I look at it. This is brotherly love. This, these are my two sons embracing each other uh, after the youngest in the white, after his baptism. And that's their big sister looking on. This is a love like no other. The love of brothers and sisters. It can't be replicated, right? But in God's kingdom, in this city of light, we are supposed to love this way to strangers. Right? We're supposed to demonstrate radical hospitality. We're supposed to love strangers like family. Why are we supposed to do this? Because God welcomed us in as strangers, right? He saved us by his grace and he made us his family. We only live by his radical hospitality. And so it would make sense as this core value in our kingdom of light that we would demonstrate this radical hospitality to the world. So we're gonna look at this today in three phases. So you can divide your paper into three, if that helps you. We're gonna look at this practice. What is radical hospitality and how do we do it? We're gonna look at the promises that sustain it. And then we're gonna look at the impetus or the motivating force behind it. So let's jump in to practice. This practice of loving strangers like family, it's gonna require our hands to be busy, right? We're gonna have to do some stuff. And so I, I, I categorized it into four hand positions that are gonna show this radical hospitality to the world. So the first one is extended hands. Look with me in verses two and three. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So how are we gonna extend our hand? Well, number one, we're gonna welcome the other. Remember ancient Israel? Remember the law that we studied in Leviticus? They were specifically to care for the marginalized, for the orphan, for the widow, for the sojourner, for the alien among them. And so we too are to welcome the stranger into our space. You never know who you will encounter, right? So here it says we're to expect to encounter angels. This was no doubt a very familiar text uh, to the audience. They would have been, when he said this, they would have been thinking of Genesis 18, the story where Abraham, remember, welcomed three strangers into his space, into his outer courts of his tent, and he sat down and provided them a meal, and they turned out to be Angels, one of them likely the pre-incarnate Christ who, who prophesied that, that Isaac would be born, right? So we are to expect 
to entertain angels, even Jesus himself, when we welcome the stranger in. Next, we're supposed to identify with the prisoner. Why? Because God rescued us, right, from our imprisonment to sin. So we treat prisoners as God has treated us. Many people in this context, or those in the audience, would have known that prisoners were often put in prison because they couldn't pay a debt. So they just owed money. And no one was gonna take care of them there. There was no food or water unless a stranger or a friend or a family member brought it to them, right? But in our context, we know that everyone in prison, literally in prison, and all of us as well, we owe a debt that only Jesus can pay, right? And people who are in prison, some of you I know minister to them, they are so hungry for the word. They're thirsty for Jesus. And so we have the privilege, the great honor to bring Jesus to them, right? And then we remember the mistreated. The text says, as if you yourself were suffering that mistreatment. We learned in Leviticus, God hates injustice, right? He hates it. And his people are to be this shining light to the nations by the way that we care for those who are oppressed and mistreated. So next, we are to have committed hands, right? Extended hands and committed hands. Think of your wedding ring. Verse four, the text says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So we're, first, we're supposed to honor marriage. This is a positive command, right? This is what we are for rather than what we're against. And I think we forget that sometimes. In the, in the city of God, we elevate honor and hold precious marriage as a covenant bond between a man and a woman. This is supposed to be a visible signpost to the world. I mean, shining bright light to the world, pointing to the covenant God that we serve. And so within marriage, we're to hold a sexual ethic. Sounds, that's hard to talk about, right? But that's, that's the truth. This is what God demands of us, that we realize that sex is a gift to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage between a husband and a wife. We recognize that it creates a stable basis for building human community. This is what God intended for his people. Marriage is literally the best environment for children to be raised safely in the kingdom of God. So while sex is wonderful, it is not solely for our personal gratification. Rather, it's a self-giving expression of committed self-giving love. Sexual immorality, my friends, is the exact opposite of that, right? Sexual immorality is selfishly motivated sex outside the covenant promises of marriage. It includes adultery, but it it covers so much more. God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to honor marriage and to enjoy sex in marriage. Well, next, we're to have generous hands, right? Verse five says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. So I think the admonition here is love people and use money, right? But we get this completely backwards in our culture. We make ourselves the center of the universe. And in that world, we love money and the stuff that it can buy. And we use people to get more of it, right? That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to be a city of light. So we're to be content 
with what we have. We're not to covet what isn't ours, even when the culture tells us that's what we should do. Why? Because we are a city. We're a city of light. And in that city, we leverage our assets together for the glory of God. And then finally, in verses 7 and 17, we read these words. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders, verse 17, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So in this kingdom economy, we're to have cooperative hands. We're to start by remembering our leaders, right? We talked about this at my table. In, in the kingdom of God, the city of light, we don't have to compete with one another to lead, right? We trust God together to raise up for us humble servant leaders. And we recognize that he holds them to a very high standard, right? So we remember them, we help them, we pray for them, we cooperate with them. Then it says to imitate their faith. I wanna suggest to you that you can't imitate someone you don't know. So do do you know the leaders of our church? Do you know the men who serve on our elder board? Do you know our pastors? Do you know our teachers? I I just wanna encourage you to know them as regular people, right? Just sinners like you in need of a savior. So know them, pray for them. Don't, Don't put them on a pedestal and remove them far from your life. Imitate their faith, the text tells us. And then finally, help them to thrive. We submit to our leaders because God is charging them to keep watch over our souls. Man, it's a big task. So rather than complaining about their weaknesses, I wanna encourage you to bring your strengths to the table to help our city of light function well. That way our leaders are able to serve with joy, but not always having to defend themselves from every complaint made against them. So, Why do we do this? Why do we have extended hands and committed hands and generous hands and cooperative hands in our city of light? Well, our culture, Western individualism, it says that the rights of the individual take precedence over the group or the family or the community. But that is not the gospel. The gospel says affluence, relationships, even sex are given to you as a gift to build human community this great city of light, to the glory of God. Why? Because Jesus didn't use his wealth or his body or his relationships or even his power for himself. Rather, he gave it freely so that we could be a family. So this is gonna be hard, right? This practice looks overwhelming. So what are the promises that the text gives us to sustain this practice? I love these. Perhaps my favorite one of my favorite verse in all of Hebrews is the first promise found in 13, verse five. I will never, and in the Greek, you can add the word ever. I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. These words reflect Moses' dying words that he gave to Israel and to Joshua before he died, before they were about to enter into the promised land, which we'll study next semester. He said in in Deuteronomy 31, six to eight, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear 
or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So it's gonna be really hard, right? To live a life not focused on ourselves, To be a part of the city of light. And this promise has really, really been a source of comfort to me as I've experienced a lot of times of darkness, deep darkness. And I'm tempted to just put all the focus on myself and to just beat myself down. And it's in those times that this promise really rings true to me. And I feel like God is telling me through those words, Amy, you're not alone. You don't have to fight to be loved or accepted or known. I know you, I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You don't have to be afraid. And so it goes right into the second promise. This comes from Psalm 118, six to seven. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These were likely the words of a very familiar song. Remember the Psalms are the songbook of Israel. And for the Jews, they sang these. They knew this truth. So they probably sang this many times and he's reminding them, you don't have to fear. Even if suffering or persecution are ahead, you don't have to be afraid. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, your Lord. And then finally, I think the the promise that kind of sums up all of what this author has been trying to tell us in the book of Hebrews, right? This book all about the supremacy of Christ. 13 verse eight, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've been reading this since chapter one, right? Jesus is God. He's always been He always will be. The author is telling his audience, don't leave him. It would be crazy, crazy for you to leave him. He is your mediator. He always lives to make intercession for you. So cling to him, trust him together. So what is the the impetus? What is the motivating force behind displaying radical hospitality to the world? Let's look at verses nine to 13 together. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So what is this motivating force? First of all, because Jesus suffered outside the camp, we can welcome the stranger in. We can love the stranger like family, right? Remember the day of atonement that we studied so so intently last semester, Leviticus 16, Leviticus verse, um, chapter 23. This was this high holy day for the Jews. And this audience would no doubt be thinking about it in this reference. Remember that was the day once a year when God demonstrated his justice and his mercy in this very symbolic ceremony. And it involved, it actually involved three goats, but I'm gonna talk about two of them. It involved two goats, right? The first one, was that goat that reminded them of God's justice, that some, a goat had to die in their place, right? So that goat was slaughtered in front of everyone and 
its blood taken into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and sprinkled on the mercy seat, purifying the Holy of Holies. But the other goat, I think, is this guy, right? This goat was the scapegoat, and he represented God's mercy, right? Because the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and confess all the sins of the people for that given year and then send that goat out to the crags, out to the outside the camp, like on this mountainside, to die, taking their sins outside the camp. The, the, the carcass of the goat that was sacrificed was also burned outside the camp. Both of these goats represented sin being removed from them. But that, that scapegoat represents Jesus so specifically, right? He was the scapegoat for you and me, suffering the cruelest death imaginable outside the city gates of Jerusalem on Golgotha because he went first, because he went outside the gates first and he lives in us through his spirit. He compels us to go outside the gates, to go outside of our comfort zones, to bear the reproach that he endured, to bring people in to our city. And we allow his spirit to do this in us, right? Just before Jesus died, Matthew 25, 34 and 30 to 36, he said some really powerful words to the people. He told them the story. He says, um, there will come a day when the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These are all signs of radical hospitality. And the people are gonna say to Jesus, wait, when, when did we see you this way? And Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So that's our first motivating force. Secondly, we're motivated by this future city which we represent, right? Look at verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but rather we seek the one that is to come, right? We've talked about this a lot. Uh, Tim Cartwright brought this up last, last Sunday. Uh, Revelation 21, one to three gives us this little glimpse of this future city. It's really just a vision. It's a vision that was given to John on the island of Patmos, but it's a beautiful uh, vision and it's a, it gives us a little insight into what the city will look like, right? So in verse, Revelation 21, one to three, it says, John writes these words, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Later in that chapter is some really cool stuff, right? About the city. It says there, there will be no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying or pain. All these things will pass away. There won't even be need for a sun or a moon because God the glory of God will give it light. And Jesus will be like a lamppost in this city, directing and guiding our steps. You know, we don't really know exactly what this city is gonna look like, but I wanna assure you that it's gonna be better than anything 
that you can imagine. We have a city to look forward to. And I think Jesus is gonna be the ultimate host there, right? We learned a lot of stuff about him in John. We learned that he's really good at washing feet, right? And going before us and preparing a place. And then he was always feeding people. He's the master of the feast. I think he's gonna have an amazing feast prepared for us. And he's even able to bring out the best wine, right? Jesus is going to be the ultimate host in the city. So don't you think it's, it's worthwhile to follow him outside the gates and to welcome people in? It really is nothing in comparison with the way that he will welcome us all into glory. So we're gonna finish with a little bit of practical advice. Turn with me to verse 15. Look there. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what are some practical ways that we can show this radical hospitality, right? To do good and to share with with others what we have? Well, I just came up with a few ideas, so I just wanna run through these together. How can we show radical hospitality individually? First of all, just invite other people into your space. That That doesn't necessarily mean your home. It's just your personal space, your spiritual space, the space that you occupy at the grocery store, at the movie theater, in the neighborhood, walking your dog. Just invite people into your space. That's a way to show radical hospitality. Our culture doesn't do this, right? Put the phone down, invite people in. And then secondly, intentionally bless people, right? You need to be good news to someone before you share the good news with them. So just be intentional about blessing others. And this one's really simple. Eat with people, right? I gave my daughter this advice this last semester at college and it really, really changed her outlook. I said, I want you to be intentional about eating with three different people each week. That means you're gonna have to work at it. You're gonna have to meet up, have lunch, invite somebody over into your apartment for dinner. Um, whatever you have to do, eat with some other people because there's no better way to share life together than around the table. So I just wanna challenge you to eat with somebody this week. And then finally, when possible, open your home. I think we get in our head that hospitality has to be opening our home, right? It doesn't. It's one way. It's a good way. And I wanna encourage you to do it because our homes are kind of the window to our family life, right? The, the best way to share what it's like to be a Christian following Christ is in your messy home. It's really good for it to be messy too when you invite someone in. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be Martha Stewart ready, right? <laughs> invite people in to share life with you. This is radical. I know, it's, I know it's freaking you out, but it's radical hospitality, right? So I just wanna encourage you to do it. Well, then what about corporately? What are ways we can do this as a church? Well, the first one is I want you to value knowing one another. I think you've seen the fruit of that this semester, right? I've seen you guys bonding as a table group. Value knowing each other, calling each other by name. This is so incredibly hard in a church our size. And we have to work at it. We have to really value it. So I want you to share this kind of um, relationship that you've built here at our tables with others in our church family. 
right? So introduce your husbands to each other. Introduce your children to each other. Introduce people from your table to someone else that you know in this room. Let's start building relationship as a family, right? So value that. Secondly, once you start knowing people, you're tempted to just stay with the people you know, right? No, in the, in the kingdom of God, we welcome the newcomer. We welcome the other. We welcome the stranger. So we have to work hard at this, especially over in our worship center on a Sunday morning when the room is dark and there's thousands of people, people just get lost. So look around you. Do more than just shake hands when, when you're told to greet, right? Get to ask them their name. Spend some time getting to know them after, after the worship server, service is over, right? Welcome the newcomer. Thirdly, sacrifice to serve our church family. I know this is a hard one, right? It's, it's not always fun to serve in children's ministry or to be at the welcome desk or to provide a meal for the band. But these are the, these are the ways that we show radical hospitality to one another. And it, is, it extends, if we can't show it to each other, we're certainly not gonna show it to the world. So we show it to one another. We sacrifice. It's not all about you. It's not all about what you need on any given day. How can you serve? How can you sacrifice for your church family? And then I believe that that will overflow. So then we join together and we serve our city. We're a light, a beacon of light to Temple and Belton and Troy and Salado and wherever else you may live. Join together to serve our city. All right, well, as this book concludes, this author makes it really clear that this is actually a letter, right? It's been such a overwhelming theological treatise that sometimes you forget that this was just a letter from, from one person to other people. And he helps us to see this as, as, the word, as the book concludes. So look with me in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you soon. And then skip down to verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I think that's funny, right? It's only taken us 10 weeks to get through that brief little word. Right? But he says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he, if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you, right? This author knows these people and they know him and he's lovingly uh, asking them to pray for him and to remember Timothy and remember the other brothers. And this is just a great encouragement to us that we together with God's people are a city of light. So I'd like to close today by doing something different. Um, There's a great benediction. I hope you talked about it um, at your table today. This benediction is such a, a summary statement of the book of Hebrews. What it, it really summarizes everything the author's been trying to tell us about who God is, who Christ is, and who we are as his people. So I would like for us to stand together and we are going to read this benediction out loud together to close and then, and then I will lead us in prayer. So read these words with me. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do join our our voices together. We join our hearts together to just praise your name, to praise you, Father, that you really are the God of peace, that you really have given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ for life and godliness. And we trust you, God, that you are equipping us together as a great city of light to to do what is pleasing in your sight, to do the good works that you've called us and prepared in advance for us to do. And we trust you, Father, that you are going to do that through us um, as your Holy Spirit enables us. So would you give us courage? Would you give us love for one another? And would you help us to be radically hospitable to our world? And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.